Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 468 with Bill Treasurer. I think you'll enjoy this chat because we are talking about how to boost your confidence and courage. You'll learn, one, the key first step to finding courage, two, approaches for taking on more wise risks, and three, how to fill up each of the three buckets of courage. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you can just tap in your podcast app player, expand where it says show notes or show description or episode notes or episode descriptions, and then click on over to the link to our show, which is pretty cool that way. Or you can visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash F468. Well, here's Bill's story. In the past two decades, thousands of executives across the globe have attended Bill's keynotes and workshops. Benefiting from the concepts first introduced in Bill's best-selling books, participants come away with stronger leadership skills, improved team performance, and more career backbone. Bill's led workshops for NASA, Accenture, Lenovo, CNN, Hugo Boss, Spanx, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which I've learned is headquartered in Atlanta from the pandemic board game, which is a ton of fun. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Bill's insights and courage and risk-taking have been featured in over 100 newspapers and magazines, including the Washington Post, New York Daily News, Chicago Tribune, Atlanta Journal, Constitution, Boston Herald, and more. Thanks to Bill for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Bill, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, I'm really delighted to be here and I'm looking forward to our time together. Oh, me too. Me too. And I want to go back in time a little bit to hear the story of you were invited to join the Metropolitan Opera in New York when you were 11 for singing. That's impressive. What's the story here? <laughs> I don't know that I've ever spoken to anybody else about this. I mean, my mom knows it, but when I was 11 years old, I had a buddy who was already in the chorus of the Metropolitan Opera, and he, and he was a good singer. And he and I would sing like John Denver songs together and such. And he said, you know, you ought to come with me down to the Met because they're looking to put people in their chorus for a Russian play that was going to be on Broadway or at the Met. And so I, I was like, oh, all right, why not? So I took the train down and I did a test run with the, uh, the person playing piano there with him and the other people in the chorus and got word afterwards. They called and said that they wanted me to be in the chorus. And then it became a decision. Like, do I want this as my track? Do I want to sort of pursue singing operatically? 
or do I want to go outside and play baseball with my buddies and stick ball and run around in the in the dirt like we had been doing up until that point? So I had a decision to make, and ultimately I decided that you know the showbiz life, at least the operatic showbiz life, probably isn't for me. So I declined the opportunity. Well, now imagine you must be pretty darn good at singing. I, I imagine they're they're pretty selective, even amongst eleven year olds. I got some girlfriends in college. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you also play the guitar that's the key. no you know what's it's interesting i would sing when other people are playing guitar but what's really kind of truly is interesting is that you know by the time i was 11 and a little bit later i literally would sing john denver songs with my buddies and the most popular john denver song that we would sing back then was the sing-along country roads right mm-hmm. uh take me home country roads to the place i belong west virginia and then fast forward a little bit later it's actually where I ended up going to college. I'm not from West Virginia. I'm from the suburbs of New York. But somehow singing that song so many times ended up plopping me into West Virginia. And in fact, the very first football game at West Virginia University that I attended that fall, it was the opening of a new stadium. And who comes in a la helicopter, lands at the stadium, and sings Country Roads but John Denver. So it's a nice sort of closure to the story. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite poetic. It's all meant to be. <laughs> well, so I want to talk a little bit about courage with you. And you've been working with this for a long time, so much so that you've, you've updated your book, Courage Goes to Work, after over 10 years. So tell us, what do we need to know about courage going to work? The interesting thing is that if you look at courage and you start studying it, as I did when I started writing the book and I started birthing my own business and then it gave birth to the book, is this idea that courage is a virtue. And I'm not the first one to say that. In fact, if you rewind far enough, Aristotle called courage the first virtue because it makes all the other virtues possible. And throughout history, other great giants have talked about courage as being one of the premier, if not the premier virtues. In fact, the Catholic Church calls it one of the four cardinal virtues. So outside of work, courage has always been a preeminent virtue. Mm -hmm. And my question became, why would it be any different in the workplace? Because a lot of workplaces are bastions of fear that fear is the primary means of motivating people to get things done, sadly still, even in the 21st century. And so that becomes the ripe opportunity for the demonstration of courage. So my whole contemplation and the, the book Courage Goes to Work was, how do we take courage and apply it in the workplace, not just outside as a virtue, but as the premier virtue of business and leadership? So if you think about it, Pete, to be a great business developer or salesperson means to knock on hundreds of doors in the face of rejection over and over again. That takes courage. To be an innovator means to draw outside of the lines, experiment, make some mistakes, forward falling, to be an innovator. You know, the greatest innovations almost always start out as blasphemy to what was before. So to be an innovator takes courage. And then finally, to be a leader means to render bold decisions that some people are going to disagree with and you've got to withstand the turbulence of that disagreement leadership takes courage so courage is essential to so many of the operating systems that make organizational life work yes certainly so it's critical and then tell us why is it often missing i think that 
for many of the reasons it's missing outside in the world. And so much of it has to do with fear. And what do we do when we face or, or fail to face more accurately fearful situations? What's interesting in the things that I've learned and researched about courage is that courage isn't the absence of fear. In fact, John McCain wrote a book called Why Courage Matters. It became a, an international bestseller. And in the book, he says that courage isn't the absence of fear. It's acting despite the fact you're afraid. So if you think about that, it means that courage is fearful, not fearless. You know, you'll see these bumper stickers on the back of trucks. No fear. No fear. You know, no brains. That's not courage. Courage, in fact, is fearful, but it's acting despite the fact that you're afraid and moving through it with that fear. So I think a lot of people walk away when they're fearful. They get paralyzed or they fight, flight, or freeze. But what what my work is suggesting, and a few others, you know, like John McCain, is that if you work through your fear, that's the discovery of courage. In fact, you can't be courageous unless the presence of fear is there. But the trick is to not run away from it. It's learn how to contend with it. Hey, well, and, and so what are your, your top tips for learning how to contend with it? Well, the first thing is know what you want. You know, I know that you're uh, based in Chicago. There's a playwright in Chicago. His name is Ambrose Redmoon. He's got another one of these quotes. He says, the courage isn't at the absence of fear. It's the decision that you've got something more important than fear to get done. So the first thing is what I call the contemplation of the holy question. The four most important words that you'll ever learn in the English language. What do you want? What do you want? If you can answer that with precision, and it may start with first identifying what you don't want, but figuring out the condition that you want that you don't yet have. In other words, identify a worthwhile goal then that sublimates fear when the goal becomes more important. And so the first thing you got to do is decide what is that thing that is so important that I don't yet have that courage will become the activation that will sort of help me take the steps forward to get that condition that I don't have. So it's critically important that you have a goal that is really compelling, that motivates you to move forward, and courage becomes the activation that sort of helps you close the gap between where you are today and that important goal that you want to get to. So the first thing to do to activate your own courage is have a worthwhile goal to put your mojo, your courage mojo, to work with. Okay, sure. So once you got a worthwhile goal, what's next? Well, the other thing is it helps to understand what I call the theory of least regrets, the theory of least regrets. Understand that any risk, any big move that you're considering comes with two risks. There's the risk of action, but then there's also the risk of inaction. And sometimes the risk of inaction is more dangerous, but it happens over a lengthy period of time, so it's harder to recognize. So one key question to ask yourself is, what will I regret the least? Taking this risk, doing this courageous thing, and maybe wiping out or not taking this risk and never knowing if I could have been successful had I done it. A lot of bar stools are warmed by the seat of a person right now everywhere in the country who's staring at the TV screen and yelling at the bartender talking about how they could have been a contender, but they didn't. 
they didn't contend. So the idea is that, you know, the risks we regret the most are very often the ones that we didn't take. So as you're getting ready for a risk to contemplate, you know, what is the thing that I will regret the least? Maybe wiping out and trying it or not wiping out, but not trying it and never knowing if I could have been successful. Okay, understood. So we got the theory of least regret. And what next? Sometimes it's good to objectify the subjective experience of a risk. So a lot of times, you know, we'll do this naturally. We'll do the pro and con list and we'll, you know, hey, here's the credit column. I might get this if I do this thing. And here's the debit column. And whichever one has the most on it, we sort of go with. But a better way to do it is what I call the worst case grid. And you simply draw an X axis and a Y axis and a scale ranging from one to 10 on both axi. And then say, if this big move, this giant leap that I'm considering doesn't work out, what is the degree of badness on a scale of one to 10? How bad is bad? So for example, I decided at one point to leave Accenture. Accenture is a great company. I had a six-figure job. I was well-networked. If I had stayed there long enough, I would have moved into a senior executive at the time partner role. There was something unsatisfying about the experience of staying there. So I decided to leave and start my own business, Giant Leap Consulting. The degree of badness, had it not worked out, for me, it's not going to be death, right? For most people, whatever the big bad move, the big scary thing that you're considering doing that's requiring courage generally is not going to be death and death would be a 10. Right. And I guess I'm thinking my scale is bigger. <laughs> I'm just thinking like the, the annihilation of, of uh, humanity. Cause like, <laughs> it's just your death. Like it's just one life. I mean, if you're working in a field like uh, military law enforcement, even food service or transportation, you can kill hundreds or thousands with your poor decisions. I suppose, uh, right? I mean, suppose yeah. if if your big risk is that, you know, you're going to put a new drug on the market that hasn't been well tested, you know, I, I think that that could be the case. Actually, it's my understanding, this may be mythology, but it's my understanding that Jonas Salk, who gave us the polio vaccine, that he first injected it to himself and to his own children, right? Now, so had that not worked out, people wouldn't call him the hero that he ultimately became. Uh, for helping eradicate polio largely. So the degree of badness, in my case, had I left Accenture and had it not worked out, and it's, you know, my wipeout would have been, I would have had, had to have lived with my in-laws, right? So my wife and I, I wouldn't be at a soup kitchen, but if my business hadn't worked out for a little period of time, we would have had to go and live with my in-laws. And that's not a 10, right? Like that's probably right. a seven. So as you consider the big, bold move that you're uh, thinking about. First of all, identify what is the degree of badness. In my case, it was a seven, having to potentially live at my uh, in-law's house. But then you also have to factor in the probability. But what this does, and so I looked at it and said, okay, had I left Accenture and my business didn't work out, you know, the truth is, I had worked with other entrepreneurs. I had taken night classes at Emory University. I already had a graduate degree. I had been in the workforce for over 10 years. All of those things lowered my metaphorical high dive. So I was able to look at it and say, you know, the probability is probably a two or three. So then you just times your you know, degree of badness, in this case, seven, times the probability and uh, grab three, and then you come up with a numeric value. For me, if it's gonna be below 50, 
as a numeric, as a number, I'm probably going to do the thing. If it's above 50, I'm going to be at least more hesitant and more calculated, but I, I probably, I may not even do whatever the thing is. But the, the cool thing about the worst case grid is it gives people an actual way of rationalizing and objectifying a subjective experience of taking a risk. Certainly. And, and I suppose, is there a corresponding sort of positive outcome that you're balancing that against? Thank you for saying that. So oftentimes in my workshops, my courageous leadership workshops, I'll have participants think about what is the next courageous move that they might be wanting to take. A good way to think of that is to ask yourself, where am I playing it too safe? in my career. And that starts to point in the direction of their next courageous move. And then after they do that, I'll have them work through the worst case grid. You know, most people like it because it's a way to be very thoughtful and objective about it. But then I'll make sure that they close it by doing the other. Let's flip it upside down and say, hey, what if this actually works out? What if I start my own business and I get to work with really cool clients and talk to really cool podcasters like Pete and uh, get to write books and such? That would be ideal that's what's the best case. And that becomes on a scale of one to 10, a, a 10 is sort of the life of my own design. What's the probability? Same thing. I've got to put it through a probability factor and say, how much do I believe in myself? So it's worthwhile to do it as a positive instead of the worst case grid, a best case grid. Okay. Well, well thank you. So I want to hear about a, a term you, you use, uh, comfortable. What does that mean? And how should we think about it? So I talk about it in the book that I think that sometimes we get into a low-level condition of dissatisfaction, a sort of a low-level dissatisfaction, and over time, we become tolerant of it. And frankly, I think that many people get a low-level toleration of living in a constant state of fear, and we become used to it. And we become a bit numb to it. We become comfortable with our fear, what I call comfortable. And when you're a leader of people who have sort of grown apathetic and are no longer challenging themselves and no longer willing to experience discomfort, then stagnation happens and individual and organizational growth is thwarted. So this idea that one of the enemies of management, in my opinion, is being comfortable and having a number of employees around you who may have grown comfortable being in a low-level fear situation. Okay. And so if, if you find yourself in such a spot, how do you shake it up? Well, you know, I think that leaders can do a couple of things to sort of shape it up. The, the first thing is they've got to jump first. They've got to be role models of courageous behavior themselves. They've got to show their workforce that they can be the first one up and off whatever high dive platform they're asking other people to jump off of. So be a role model and ask yourself as a leader, when's the last time you had sweaty palms and did something that was exciting and scaring at the same time? The second thing is that you've got to create safety as a leader, create safety, physical safety, of course, right? We all want to work in a work environment where we don't think that our lives are going to be threatened. But we also, as leaders, have to create psychological safety where people feel that they can voice their true opinions about things without you chopping their head off. The third thing is a leader has to help people learn how to harness fear. So the whole discussion that you and I had about moving through fear instead of running away from it and learning to become comfortable with discomfort. Ginny Rometty is the CEO of IBM. She has a wonderful quote that she said at Fortune Magazine's Most Powerful Women's Summit. She said, comfort and growth 
don't coexist. Comfort and growth don't coexist. So you as a leader have to ensure that people recognize that, look, discomfort's part of it. It's part of how we grow and progress. And so learning and acquiring new skills and taking on new challenges that, in fact, make us uncomfortable is how you're going to grow as an individual, but how the organization's going to grow collectively. And then the fourth thing as a leader to be modulating between comfort and discomfort. You got to nudge people out into discomfort where they start getting their own sweaty palms, but you got to let them stay there long enough to acquire new skills. And then as they start to acquire those skills and become too comfortable with them, you've got to move them back out into discomfort. As it relates to modulating discomfort, if you're up for it, Pete, I can share with you a story about how that worked in my own life. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, and it becomes actually the genesis of my business and it became the genesis of my exploration into the whole idea of courage and why I think courage is so important. But if you rewind far enough back in my own career, before all of it, like I was not a great athlete growing up. I wasn't a great runner. I'm not very tall. I'm five foot seven and a half, not built for football, but I found springboard diving. Uh, some friends were jumping around at the pool one day doing back dives and butt back jumps and girls were looking at them. And I thought, Whoa, I figure I'll try that. And I did a back dive and I pulled my leg around and I did a back somersault and none of my friends could do it. So I got good on the low board as a one meter springboard diver. Fast forward, colleges started to dangle scholarships in front of me. I grew up in Westchester, New York, and I won the Westchester County diving championships three times. So colleges took an interest in me, but all those college coaches would say, Bill, you're a great low board diver. We're very interested in you. We do have some scholarship money, but tell us about your high board list of dives. I never bothered to learn a high board list of dives because I was and am petrified of heights. So I had a coach who said, look, do you want to try to get a scholarship? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he would take me down to Iona College in Nourishell, New York. Where I have been there. Have you been there? there. Have you? lovely. The Gales. (laughs) Yeah. No no Gales. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. It is the the Gales. uh, They've got a lot of Irish there in that uh, part of New York. So Iona, to this day, it's the only place that I know of that has a, a diving board, even to this day, built in a hydraulic lift. So he could take the diving board and move it from one meter to one and a half meter. Now now I'm really uncomfortable and I'm doing screaming belly whoppers and I don't want to go to practice and I'm upset with him for making me do this. I'm getting welts on the back of my legs. But after a hundred dives, my heart starts to stop racing. And after 200 dives and, you know, 50 practices, it starts to get better. After like 300 dives, I start to get bored. Boredom's a great clue. Boredom's a clue that it's time to move people back out into discomfort. And what do you think my coach did at that point? He used the handy hydraulic lift to increase the height. You are a smart podcaster, my friend. Exactly. He moved it to two meters and now I'm, you know, back to the heart's racing. I'm upset with him, welts on my legs, etc. But through this process of modulating between comfort and discomfort, he would push me out into discomfort long enough where I could acquire new skills. And once I acquired the skills, I'd settle to that place and I'd start to eventually become even bored. And that became the clue to move it up. So the long arc of the story is I ended up getting a full scholarship to West Virginia University. But after that, I became a world-class high diver and a member of the US high diving team, diving from heights 
that scaled to over 100 feet, traveling at speeds in excess of 50 miles an hour into a small pool that was 10 feet deep. And I'm a high diver who I already told you is afraid of heights. So this was the discovery of my courage. Hot dog. Well, that is a nice metaphor there because you can see kind of very mathematically as well as viscerally a little bit higher. Oh, I feel that uh, a little higher. Oh, I feel that more. And so that's there. And I suppose you could think about your own courage challenges in that kind of a way with regard to, you know, what's a tiny step versus a big step and, and all the steps in between. And maybe you could give us an example there. So let's say not sales, because I can, I think it's almost too easy. I want to make you work for it, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Let's say in the workplace, you know, it's a common thing that people fear. And, and what would be the equivalent of the one meter, the one and a half meters, and the, and then the 30 meters? Yeah. So, so good question. And you're right, by the way, this metaphor, it actually became the metaphor of my business, giant leap consulting. But now the whole business is about what high dive are you facing? And how can we help you take whatever personal or professional high dive will move you forward? And so uh, the, an example that I can think of is I did a 360 degree feedback with a group of leaders that I was working for. It was a cohort of, of about 25 people. And one of these leaders got some terribly harsh feedback that he was a hothead, that he was ill-tempered, uh, that he was dictatorial, like really scathing stuff. And it slapped him upside the head, as a 360-degree feedback will sometimes do with some people. And some people reject the feedback. They're like, well, this is a bad time, or you don't understand, they, they, I inherited the worst team, and, and come up with excuses. But this leader really took it to heart. You know, there's an old saying that Gandhi said. He said, the truth only hurts if it should. And it did hurt him. And it became, what are we going to do? You just got all of this feedback about your leadership. You want to be a better leader. The company is investing in you, putting you in this leadership program. You're managing huge consequential projects, some of the uh, 50 to $100 million worth of, of uh, project revenue that you're managing. What are you going to do? And so we decided with his boss that this person would get sort of extra attention. And we did a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching together. And what it came down to was, he was so fixated on production that he wasn't making one-on-one -on -one time with his own direct reports, not about giving them direction for their jobs, but he wasn't making any relationship building time at all. He was a, a typical, and I don't mean to be stereotypical, but you know, he was sort of uh, engineering minded. He was, it was all about production. It was all about the work schedule. It was all about the work breakdown structure. It was all about the PL. And it had very little to do with the building strong relationships and interpersonal chemistry of his team so that he would have some goodwill and loyalty around him. He didn't. He, he had people who wanted to go work for other people. So he had to sort of take emotional risks of being willing to focus on his own people and treating them in a more respectful and humane way and worry less about production and worry more about investing in an emotional relationship. I know that sounds squishy, but here's how I know that it worked. Is about five years later, I was leading a similar leadership program, in fact, the very same leadership program, but it was a different cohort going through it. And three of those people out of the 25 were people who reported to him now, 
And to a person, they were telling me what a great leader he was, what a great mentor, how much he developed them, how much he was so interested in his fair treatment of them. It was like an entirely different person. But the courage for him was the willingness to be uncomfortable in terms of not being fixated on P&L and production. That stuff was always going to be there. But to invest the time in the development and the attention giving of his own people and building relationships with them. And it made all the difference. It made him whole. It made him sort of more emotionally attuned and aware. And the fear there could show up in terms of, oh my gosh, if I spend this time talking about this mushy relationship stuff, like we're not spending time making it happen, you know, churning out production. So, so it's kind of scary or boy, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to cry <laughs> if I really right. start listening to what's going on in their lives? And I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. So, so that can be fearful there. Exactly. If I invest the time and I become interested in this person's career and what they want to get out of their career and what they want to get out of my time being their leader. And hey, maybe even what's going on in their own life, if they want to share any of that, I might actually have to care about this person. They're no longer just a quote unquote resource. It's a human being that I'm in relationship with. And now I care about, them. oh man, if I care about them, I'm going to be obliged to them in a different way than I am if I'm just their boss, quote unquote. So you're Right. It comes with, you know, a certain risk. And it's hard to fire them too when you care. It's hard to be hard, <laughs> right? It's hard to be tough. But, you know, I think what it does is it changes the equation. So many people in leadership roles, it's all about results, right? Like you, if you don't get results, you're not going to stay a leader. We see it at professional coaches, for example. I mean, if you have enough of a losing streak, you're going to get replaced. So I get it. Results matter. But I think that we have to put the equation and make sure that it's the treatment of people as the means to the ends of getting the result. But too many people like this person focused on the result, the result, the result, the ends. Give me the ends. You give me the golden egg. Give me the golden egg. Give me the golden egg. And cutting open the goose to get the golden egg instead of the treatment of people, which is the means to getting the better production. Right. And, and when you treat them, you ought to be clear that it's not, they don't feel like, like you know, they are a means to, to the end alone. Right. And that's sort of like what they are to you. But yeah, understood in terms of people are that which make it happen. So folks need to be treated well in order for to see that occur. Now, I, I want to make sure we have a, a moment to talk about, you've got a concept called three buckets of courage. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Can you tell us about this? Sure. I think that when we think of courage, it's this big, you know, ambiguous topic and we think oh man courage that's huge that 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 must that's for heroes that's for people you know with the machine gun charging up the hill in a, in the theater of war uh, that's for the person standing on the moon that's for the person saving somebody's life or running into a burning building and that, that's true courage has its place for heroics but i believe that there's a more tempered everyday experience of courage that's accessible to all of us and it helps to break down the idea of courage so that it's not so ambiguous and i break it down into three different behavioral buckets that i call the three buckets of courage the first bucket of courage is the courage to try something you've not done before it's the courage of first attempts it's the courage of action it's the courage of initiative to cross this threshold and do this thing that other people may be doing, but for you, it's the first time. And because it's the first time, there's a degree of unknown across the threshold. So I call this 
try courage. You can think of the first time you drove a car, for example, uh, when other people are on the road driving a car. But for you, it was a petrifying experience. Or the first time you moved into management and you uh, now had direct reports reporting to you and it's a foreign experience to you, you can draw from the experiences of others. But for you, it's the first time. That's different than the second bucket of courage. The second bucket of courage is the courage of vulnerability, emotional exposure, the courage of relationships, and I call this trust courage. It's the courage to entrust others and assume some degree of risk that they may betray you. Because when you entrust somebody, there's always a chance that they could betray you and then your judgment gets questioned. So for example, in the workplace, delegating a consequential, meaningful, substantial task to somebody without pulling it back from them and without hovering over them like a helicopter parent, but building up their skills and entrusting them so that they can be self-sufficient and self-reliant to do this task. There's always a chance that they mess up and it becomes a reflection on your judgment, but this is the courage it takes to build relationships. And I find that the higher you go up in the organization, the less often you see the trust courage be because I think that we become jaded over time because of betrayal. The third bucket of courage is the one that we often think of when we talk about courage in the workplace. We think of the person with the shaky voice standing up to authority or giving the direct message when it's really hard for them to do so. We call this the courage of the truth teller and the, the bucket as the third bucket of courage is tell courage. It's the voice of assertiveness and truth telling. We want people and we want leaders especially to be honest. But as you know, Pete, we do a lot of socially appropriate lying. But when your spouse says, do I look fat in this dress? Honesty, we say we want it, but it's kind of hard to give. Somebody raises their hand at the town hall meeting. Are there going to be more layoffs? And we're told we're not allowed to say honesty is a hard thing. So it takes courage to be the honest truth teller, knowing that the risk you assume is if you tell the truth, you might be excluded from the group and no longer belong. So each one of these buckets, try, trust, and tell, has some risk attached to it, which is why it involves courage. Now, th I like that because it really, they really are a different phenomena in terms of you may well find that you are you know, ready to try anything, but you really are, are slow to trust, you know, or you, you've got the audacity to sort of tell people what you think, no problem, but you know, you're worried about kind of doing something totally different outside of your, your world. So, so I think that's a really handy way to, to think about it in terms of what they, they share is this notion of courage and breaking out of the, the comfort to do something, but also have their own sort of, you know, nuances or flavors. So, so tell me, do you have any pro tips in terms of, of each of these three? Like if you want to be more courageous in each of the three buckets, what should you do? Yeah, it's a good question. And you're very perceptive. You're right that each one of these, you can see the distinction between them, but you also see the reinforcement. And you're also right that we tend to be stronger in one of those buckets than the others. And that's great. That's the area where you could give people mentorship, for example. But if your bucket is low in any of those areas, you're likely to give people advice that comes from fear because your own bucket isn't full in that particular area. And each one has strengths and weaknesses. So in terms of advice, I would always, whatever advice that I would give people would be to start small, right? Like no high diver goes up and does a 100 foot jump one time 
without doing a thousand jumps from one foot. So I call these lead ups. So start small. So for example, if you wanted to demonstrate try courage, a small way to do that. So doing something that breaks routine, breaks habit, uh, a willingness to go to a different restaurant at lunch. Don't go to the same haunt that you go to all the time. Take a different route to work. Break up your routines in small ways, and it will give yourself mental permission to do so in larger, more substantial ways. Trust, when it comes to trust courage, one thing you can do is sort of fill in the blank to this question. I will trust you when dot, dot, dot. When is it? What is the criteria with which you give a person trust? Some people are like, I'll trust you right off the bat. I always presume trust. And then if you screw up, then I will have a harder time trusting you. Other people are like, I will trust you after you prove to me you can be trusted. And they're sort of, they're prove it people who need evidence. But at least be conscious to know what is the criteria with which you will give people trust or withhold trust because it allows you to understand, is your standard too high? Uh, and would you maybe need to lower that standard so that you can build relationships quicker with people? And then for tell courage, to have the courage of voice or assertiveness. One, one thing I often suggest for people in lower level positions who are struggling with a boss who might be dominant is to go to your boss or maybe even during your annual review and say, boss, I just need to know, do you need me to sort of agree with everything that you say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you need me to be a yes person? Do you need uh -huh. me to be a brown noser? And I'm telling you, 95% of bosses are going to be like, no, I don't want you to do not. You know, you you absolutely need to push back oh, on Bill, me. thank you so much for asking. Yes, please. <laughs> I've got all of these disagreements and critical thinking I have to do everywhere. It'd be so refreshing if you could just tell me what I want to hear constantly. <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> right? This tip is all about establishing a ground rule with your boss that you won't be a a butt kisser and a brown noser and a yes person because they don't want you to be. They've in fact clarified that. But then you got to go a step further and say, great boss, I'll tell you what, I will honor this commitment. Can you do me a favor? Give me some coaching right now. When I need to disagree with you, how can I do that in a way that would be receptive to your ears? Like, and then that person will give them advice. So, you know, don't do it when I'm getting ready to walk into the board meeting. Don't do it when you see 50 items in my inbox and they'll give you some coaching so that when you fast forward six months from now and you actually have to disagree with your boss, you can say, hey, boss, remember when we agreed during my performance review that you didn't want me to be a yes person and you gave me some coaching on how to give you feedback that you might need to hear. I got some things to say to you right now that will honor the commitment that we made to each other. So it's basically setting a ground rule where you've got permission to tell the truth to your boss. That's good. That's good. Well, well, tell me, Bill, any key things you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Oh, I think, you know, for the listener, there are a couple of good old timey questions to ask yourself. When's the last time you did something for the first time? It's a good question. And it's uh, it'll allow you to think, hey, am I extending myself enough? The other one, of course, is where am I playing it too safe? Uh, so sometimes it, it's like the thought experiments. To, there's a few key questions like that that can help your listeners orient themselves to are they extending themselves enough? Okay. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? Well, I do like that quote from Gandhi, right? That the truth only hurts if it should. I, I like that because it keeps me accountable to giving tar harder messages that I might need to deliver to my clients and or 
to myself, right? Like sometimes somebody will give me feedback and my instant response is wanting to defend myself or to find something wrong with that person who gave me that feedback. But if I just sort of sit with that quote from Gandhi, yeah, you know, that hurt. Why did that hurt? And I start to think about, you know, what is the truth of what they said and why does it hurt me? So I, I like that quote. That's a, a good quote for me. And how about a favorite book? I'll tell you, one of my favorite books of all time. So I do a lot of leadership development, designing, developing, and delivering comprehensive leadership programs. Some of them are two years long, these leadership programs. And I think that a lot of people in the practice of leadership development deify leadership too much. They put it on a pedestal. And I think it's really important that practitioners of leadership development also be heads up about the dangers of leadership put in the wrong hands. And one of my favorite books on this is by Stanley Milgram, who did the famous Milgram studies, the shock studies. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book called Obedience to Authority. And it shows you how willing people are to are willing to capitulate to authority figures with very small actual authority over them. They're willing to sort of cede control to a person who tells them to do something if they're wearing a lab coat and don't actually have leadership authority over them. It's just a fascinating book about how quickly people will capitulate to authority figures and the quote in there about the banality of evil or that uh, the topic of the banality of evil, that evil often is not acting courageously and it's sort of a yawn. They, it's the uh, sin of omission, right? That they don't do the thing that they ought to do because somebody's telling them not to do it. Mm -hmm. They're just following orders from somebody who doesn't actually have any control over them. Oh, yes. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job? Well, I was going to say the worst case grid. I also like the five P's and the five P's allow you to contemplate. Should I, shouldn't I take this risk? And again, it, it rather than a pro and con list, it looks at five different things. The first is passion. Am I passionate about this? D does it give me energy to think about this? Does it give me positive energy to think about this big, bold move that I'm contemplating, this courageous action? So passion is the first P. The second P is purpose. If I take this risk, is it going to move me forward that a big, bold move shouldn't be about compensation? What will this risk get me? It should be about destination. Where will this risk carry me or take me? And then the third P is principles. If by doing this thing, am I embodying or upholding some principles or virtues that I hold dear and say that I'm all about? If I take this risk, is it in fact a demonstration of this principle put to action? The fourth P is prerogative. Am I going to take this because other people are telling me to, because my dad was a dentist and he wants me to become a dentist, <laughs> or am I going to take this risk because I've thought about it and it's the, it moves my life forward. It's an exercise of my own free will, this decision, should I, shouldn't I get off this platform? And then the fifth P is profit. Do I stand to get something? If I do this thing, what is the potential reward for my life that could be redeeming somehow? If I put something through the five Ps, passion, purpose, principles, prerogative, and profit, I'm in a much higher probability of having a successful outcome to this courage action than if I don't, or that if I only put it through a pro and con list. And notice, by the way, Pete, that I put profit last. If you put that first, it skews your thinking on everything and you, you make the risk all about what can I gain and you start chasing this shiny object.
And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your audiences and, and readers? I guess one nugget is it's a quick story from a person that I've gotten to work with on four occasions. She actually wrote the forward to the original version of Courage Goes to Work, and her name is Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. And Sarah tells the story of when she was a little kid, her dad used to sit down at the dinner table with her and her brother. She was about 10 or 11 years old. Her brother was a little younger. And her dad used to ask her a simple question at the end of every week. He'd say, okay, kids, what have you failed at this week? What have you failed at this week? And she learned at an early age that if you're not extending yourself, even occasionally to the point of failure, then it's going to be hard for you to be successful. And I think that that's sort of a, a good golden nugget, again, about the importance, the willingness to move into discomfort, because that's where the growth happens. Beautiful. And Bill, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'd point them to a couple of websites. One is BillTreasurer.com. Another is GiantLeapConsulting.com. And since we're talking about Courage Goes to Work, guess where they can go to find that? CourageGoesToWork.com. You are a smart man, Pete. Cool. Well, Bill, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you all the best and much courageous adventures in your future. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I hope that your readers drew some value from it. And I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed what Bill had to say on a couple dimensions. One is to just quantify the badness <laughs> of stuff because it, it's sort of like, oh, hey, that's not so terrible. I'm not dead. That is really handy to bear in mind. What are we really talking about here? If the worst case scenario unfolds, how bad is it? Oh, it's just kind of inconvenient. Well, I could live with that. I've, I've had kind of inconvenient things happen to me all the time, as well as that notion that if you're bored, it's a clue that it's time to move back out into discomfort. And I think that's, that's really nifty is that the absence of fear and risk isn't necessarily feeling safe and warm and cozy and wonderful and content and, and wonderful. It's, it's often boredom. So that's a great indicator right there is like, huh, I'm bored kind of a lot. Maybe it's time to push myself and, and, and try some new things. And then you'll, you'll experience some fearfulness, some fear, but also excitement because you're, you're pushing the envelope there. So a nice little reminder from Bill. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items we've referenced, you can find it awesomeatyourjob.com slash F468 or inside the handy app that you're laying this podcast. You can just sort of click to expand the notes. Uh, which is pretty cool. And I hope you push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Alexandra Levitt. She is talking about, are the robots going to enslave and murder us? And, and more immediately practically for your job, what things are being automated? What things are not being automated? Where are the risks? Where are the opportunities? How do we future-proof our careers? Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. 
Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 